I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Some of you may have seen the cartoon on the All Saints Facebook page or in the bulletin about the disciple Thomas sitting in a circle, having a picnic, talking to the other disciples, and saying, I know he was really special, but dead men don't come back. Uh, 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 He's standing behind me, isn't he? That about sums up my wrestling with the resurrection. And that's also the sequence in these Gospels, and especially here in Luke, that Luke wishes to present to us. The sequence of these appearances or experiences of the risen Christ always seem to follow a certain order, starting with doubt or some non-recognition, and then moving to some physical support for the resurrection, and then followed by a commissioning and then a time where Jesus either withdraws or ascends. And it seems like any experience of the risen Christ usually or often holds all four of these things simultaneously. There's always some doubt or non-recognition. There's always some sense of support for something significant that has been resurrected. There's always a commissioning and then a withdrawal or an ascension. Our text in verse 41 says, While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, and he said, Let's have something to eat. It's all too good to be true, so let's eat. We might even say, Let's have a party. And their joy overwhelms their doubt, even though it doesn't always eliminate those doubts. And I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued with this combination of joy and still wondering. That resonates with me. And when you are no longer preoccupied with the proofs of the resurrection, you can begin to accept that the reality of Jesus as the Christ is no longer needed out there because it's in here. Luke, in effect, is taking us back to Eden where from the beginning we are reassured that we are created in the divine image. It is in us. But this reality so easily gets rubbled over by our appetite for the knowledge of good and evil, for the temptation of dualistic thinking, right and wrong thinking. And the resurrection overrides, I want to suggest, this message. The resurrection's overriding message is that we are invited to live from that divine image place, not the place that is only looking for proof out there in the realm of experience or ideas. And so it's not about being right. It's about being alive from the inside, from the heart, from the reality of always being in the image of the divine. And ultimately, I believe, that is what resurrection stories are about. This is strongly reiterated in our first John passage. We are children of God. And when we live from that place, we live in love and for love. We die to an ego-based reality and are resurrected to a loving action in the world reality. I move within this sequence constantly. 
And that's why Thomas is a bit of a hero for me. Doubt yearns for proof unless I see the nail prints and his side. And yet faith transcends that demand for truth. And so when we experience the resurrected Christ, we don't necessarily demand intellectual surety. We experience joy, even in the midst of some wondering or doubts. And we see our true identity hidden in God. My Lord and my God, Thomas says. And in most of the appearance narratives, the resurrected Christ is not initially recognized. But when he is, he is internalized. Something happens that changes the seers. And in many ways, this is a movement from knowledge to wisdom, which was the original invitation in the Garden of Eden. There were two trees, the tree of the knowledge and the tree of life, wisdom. Knowledge wants proof. Wisdom prefers loving action. The mystic poet Rumi puts it this way. Yesterday, I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today, I am wise, so I am changing myself. Knowledge is clever and likes to strut its stuff and then change or judge others. It's about who's right and who's wrong. But wisdom is not afraid to look inside and see what needs changing there. And this makes wisdom more life-giving than knowledge alone, because it dares to ask, how do I need changing, before it asks, how does the world need changing? But knowledge and wisdom don't need to be mutually exclusive. It's a both-and rather than an either-or. Inner work and outer work must go together. And as the physicist David Bowen says about knowledge, Something more than just science is needed. We need values, passion, courage, and the love to put them into action. This inner motivation begs, longs for resurrection in our lives. The inner motivation for all that is good, true, and beautiful in the world lives in you and lives in me. At the core of our being, it is the breath I breathe the living breath. It is the being in human being. And the disciples and some amazing women and the Jesus followers think they see a ghost. They don't recognize him, or they think he is a gardener or an angel. But they recognize that something significant is happening. There was a presence present to them, and eventually they realized that this presence had always been with them and in actuality was in them. And consequently, they live more into the reality of being created in the image of the divine, no longer lost in sin. This is a life lived on the basis of a new image of who we are, that we are so much more than the image we or others have, have of us. And so I want to suggest that sin begs to be re-imaged here. Sin is not about morality or behavior. Soren Kierkegaard and Reinhold Niebuhr, drawing from Thomas Aquinas, 
suggest an interesting redefinition of sin that overwhelms our tendency to make sin about immoral acts, about doing something bad. Bad acts, I might suggest, are the consequence of sin. Sin is much more an identity word. And they define sin as both pride and despair, based on the image we seek to construct and how we and others perceive that image. This is sin because it doesn't reflect the image of God in us. We are created in that image. It is ego-based. I'll try to explain. If I work really hard to build up my image to others and to myself, and I succeed, my temptation will be self-satisfied pride. If I work my hardest to project my image and build it, and I don't succeed, my temptation will be despair. This is the human condition. We are constantly in this battle, living in the brackets of pride and despair. And this is their redefinition of sin. This Christ presence in us is around us all the time. I am with you always. But something keeps us from recognizing him. For me, it's like the cartoon I mentioned. I occasionally think I see the Christ out of the corner of my eye. But when I try to look directly, Christ isn't always as apparent. What might I be actually seeing? Mother Teresa puts it this way. When I see a beggar lying in the ditch, I see Jesus. I see the Christ. I want to suggest that only great love and compassion make that scene possible. And so if you want to see the resurrected Christ, notice the places where love exists or is invited, where Christ in you sees the Christ in me, and where the Christ in me sees the Christ in you. A little grammar lesson. We tend to think of God as a noun or a person or a subject in a grammatical sense. Richard Rohr and many others say God is not a noun because a noun describes an object, a person, a place, or a thing. Nouns tend to be more temporal. He says that God is more a verb. He suggests loving action in the world, the force or spirit of love. Nouns are generally created or incarnated. Jesus is the noun of God. So if we are created in the divine image, then so are we. We are created to be God's expression of loving action in the world. At least that was the divine intent. However, it's not forced on us. We must choose it by faith. And so to accept Jesus now becomes an acceptance that we too are seeking to be loving action in the world. That's what it means to be one with God. Remember the mythological novel and movie The Shack, written a few years ago? In the novel, an Asian woman, Saraya, which means breath of life, <clears throat> she plays the part of the Holy Spirit, and she says to Mac, I will take a verb over a noun anytime. I am a verb. I am that I am. I will be who I will be. I am a verb. I am alive dynamic, ever active, moving. I am a being verb. 
In fact, the minute we try to name God as a noun, we make God a subject, a noun. And remember when Abraham wanted to know God's name so he could tell the people who had sent him, God said simply, I am. I am what I am. Tell them that I am sent you. And so when you hear the word God, perhaps think more in terms of loving presence in the universe. To to do anything else, maybe to create an idol, to give it a noun name. And that's why I identify with the saying, if your God hates the same people you do, you have created God in your own image. In actuality, we are created in the Creator's image, in the image of loving action in the world. And then we are given the greatest and perhaps the hardest gift to receive, free choice. I will sound like a broken record here. However, my intent is to invite you to make new connections, to integrate, that everything God desires for you has always been there for all humanity in all times. We build our own glittering image of who we are, and when you have always had the image of the great I am, the reality of loving action in the world, then why do that? Resurrection tells us that death may be the end of a life, but as Tuesday with Maury says, it's not the end of a relationship. God is a verb, loving action in the world, and that makes all of creation the subject and object of that verb. You and I are the subject and object of that verb. That verb lives in us as potential loving action. We are born for it. God is love in us. God is wherever loving action is happening. And this makes God and the risen Christ something that we participate in rather than a force that needs to be appeased or rather a God-noun who acts on us through coercion, violence, moral outrage, or for that matter, overwhelming political correctness. God's revelation as I am is a reminder that God is one and that God exists and is omnipresent. Remember those words from Romans 1. Everything that can be known about God is made plain in the things that God has made. This is very significant in a world characterized by violence, poverty, greed, and suffering. As Sariah says to Mac, unless I am, there are no verbs. And verbs are what makes the universe alive. My words are alive and dynamic, full of life and possibility. And so regardless of where your doubts lie, in all these resurrection passages, it is obvious that something significant was happening that both challenged their intellect and overwhelmed their emotions. And whenever that happens, it puts us in a funk of longing and confusion. And it always begs a question, what am I going to do with this now? And it usually means something in you a preconceived idea, a presumed certainty, a significant part of your worldview is being asked to die, and something new is being invited to be resurrected in its place. And it feels like it's changing everything. 
The irony is that often you'd never have discovered the new awareness without the old presumed uncertainty. It always feels like a movement from a bad certainty to a good uncertainty. It becomes a defining moment, a time when you look at the past and the future as before that event and after that event. We will likely look at this pandemic in the future as one of those defining moments. That's what it was for the disciples and the followers, the resurrection. That's what it is for us. And much of our world now looks at those events as B.C. and A.D. as defining moments. God is a verb, forms, alternative communities, and alternative economics as a resistance to cultural injustices. And this is why we tell the story of the resurrection, that loving action in the world is always resurrected. It never dies. It tells us that love conquers injustice, leaving us with the words of Thomas, my Lord and my God, for we are servants of this loving action in the world, just as Jesus was. Amen.